Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Hope everybody who's listening out there, I hope they're doing fantastic as well. And really looking forward to having this conversation because it builds on the Dark Valley sort of universe that we have recently discovered with our new show, Dark Valley, that's been uh, produced and written and hosted by and investigated by Jennifer Amell, who pops in real quick to talk to us about this. But before we get to all of that, Tim, you, spill it. <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for uh, for asking. And yeah, this case is interesting. We're talking about the unsolved murder of Joanne Margaret Dunham from Unity, New Hampshire in 1968. And Lance, we talk about a lot of cases from New England because we're from New England and we're in New England right now. And the new podcast from Crawl Space Media, Dark Valley, covers the Connecticut River Valley killings. And so that's one of the reasons we are looking at Joanne's case today. Her case is not naturally considered to be a part of those um, because it occurs outside of the pocket of time that is generally considered to be that one or possibly more, one or more uh, killers um, streak there. So this... This happens in 1968, which is 10 years before the Valley killings start. And as you mentioned, host of Dark Valley, Jennifer Mel, will join us later to discuss the possible connection to those killings. But uh, we're first going to go through the story of Joanne Dunham's murder. And this research was brought to us by Kathleen Studer. So big thanks to Kathleen Studer. And Tim, if people wanted to hear this conversation without the commercials, without the sponsors... Plus, all of the other episodes of our shows, including Crawl Space and Dark Valley, where would they go to find this? Well, folks can now subscribe to Missing Premium on Apple Podcasts, but if you're not an Apple user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. It's $4.99 a month. As you mentioned, you get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show, which everyone loves and that's also bundled with Crawl Space and Dark Valley. So you get all ad-free episodes there. And when people are listening to this episode, feel free to rate and positively review all of our shows and also follow all of our shows. Tim, where could they do that? 
Folks can follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back to discuss Joanne Dunham's unsolved case. Joanne Margaret Dunham was born on August 15, 1952 in Buffalo, New York, and she was the first child of John and Dolores Dunham. But by 1968, she was newly living with her family in North Charleston, New Hampshire, and her father John was in the Navy, had been the Sheridan, New York Chief of Police between 1957 and 1960, And in 1968, he managed the mobile home park where they were living in Charleston, New Hampshire. And that summer of 1968, Joanne was 15, going on 16, not quite out of school at the high school she was attending, Fall Mountain Regional High School in Langdon, New Hampshire. Fall Mountain serviced several small towns in that area and was located about eight miles from Charleston. And at the time, she is described as relatively tall, 5 foot 10 inches, and attractive. And Charleston, New Hampshire is a small town in west central New Hampshire next to the Connecticut River, which divides New Hampshire to the east and Vermont to the west. It's an area of forested green rolling hills interspersed with farms, ranches, and a small amount of industry. And in 1970, Charleston had a population of 3,274. And, you know, covering these old cases, these cold cases from the... 60s and 70s, there's obviously a limited amount of information. But what we do know is on the morning of Tuesday, June 11th, 1968, Joanne, who again was 15 years old, left her home at just around 7 a.m. at the Reich Mobile Home Park to walk to the bus stop on Route 12, about a half a mile from her home. And so Joanne never made it onto the school bus, and there were no witnesses to where she went or who abducted her, and the last reported sighting of her alive is in the area by workmen at that mobile home park. So it seems like a small area between the mobile home park and the bus stop, but that is somewhere in that area is where she went missing. Yeah, it's remarkably a short distance, and I think the first thing that we think about is, who are these workmen? How are they screened? Again, 1968. Who are the other people in the mobile home park? You'd have to think that this is where the investigation were to have its foundation if law enforcement is going to be questioning people. In regards to the school, because she was on her way to the school, it's unknown if that school tried to notify her parents when she did not arrive that day. So her parents didn't notice anything was wrong, didn't know anything was wrong until she didn't arrive home from school. So they didn't have any indication that she hadn't made it to school. So the entire day goes by, the entire school day goes by, and they didn't realize anything was wrong. So what are we talking here, like six, seven hours? Yeah, something like that. And then her parents immediately reported Joanne missing when she didn't return home from school. And the following day, Wednesday, June 12th, 1968, a local farmer and his dog who were assisting police and community members with the search for Joanne located her body in a wooded area off of Quaker City Road in Unity, New Hampshire. So this area where she was located is approximately five and a half miles from the location where she disappeared from. There's no indication as to the locations where searches were being done on this day, how it 
came to be that the Claremont farmer was searching that particular area of Quaker Road. In other words, we don't know if there was a lead that sent them there that was never disclosed. And the farmer, in fact, was not considered a suspect. Right. And Joanne was found fully clothed in a pile of leaves with her hands bound behind her back. And there was two-inch masking tape around her head from the bottom of her mouth to just above her eyes. There was no indication that she was sexually assaulted, but that masking tape is a pretty weird clue on all this. Also very telling about the state of mind that the person was in, regardless of whether or not she was alive when they taped her face. Bottom of her mouth to just above her eyes, they taped her entire head. Yeah, I think I think the intention was to... Was to Asphyxiate her. Yeah. And on Thursday, June 13th, the next day, a Boston area pathologist was called in to conduct the autopsy where she was positively identified and the pathologist determined, like we just said, the cause of death was asphyxiation due to the masking tape being affixed tightly about mouth and nose. My God, what an absolutely gruesome way to die. Yeah, I, it's really actually kind of even hard to picture. Um, I don't know if uh, it's because it's too disturbing or just um, too bizarre with, with the masking tape, but Joanne's death certificate calculates time from event to death being estimated at 10 minutes. Jesus. And they also noted that she had some blunt injury to her neck consistent with manual strangulation, but that was not listed as the primary cause of her death. And to confirm, her death certificate also notes the manner of death was in fact homicide and the time of death was most likely 8 a.m. on June 11th, so about an hour after she left her house. So if this is a case, it appears that Joanne's abductor took her immediately, asphyxiated her, causing her death within an hour. Yeah, that is wild. The uh, early morning time of death is is so I don't know confusing and disturbing. Um, you just I, I feel like you picture most murders occurring at night and eight a.m. Something even more disturbing about that. Yeah, especially when this is the time of day. I know that this is in a sense a small town, but this is the time of day where people are just getting out to go to work. You know, everything's starting. This is probably one of the more populous times of the day. School is starting. Yeah, it's a really innocent time of day for it's, for a yeah. kid like Joanne walking to school or to the bus stop. You know. Yeah, unbelievable. Absolutely ridiculous. Tragic. I mean, so the time of the day is really interesting to bring up. What does that tell you about the person who did this? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're going to speak with Jennifer Amell in a few minutes. The Valley Killer from Dark Valley, he has a, a couple of victims, at least a couple, that were um, killed during the day as well. So I don't know. Maybe it's just not as uncommon as it seems right now, or maybe there is a connection. I don't know. feels to me like somebody knew that this was her path, that she typically walked to the bus stop well it definitely sounds like it would be a routine yeah so yeah that would open the door for someone to have been stalking her potentially i know you mentioned the workmen earlier or just other people in the in the park right in the mobile park um you know there might be a lot of neighbors there yeah i hope everyone was interviewed because it probably was the same time of day that she walked out of that mobile park every every school day you know 
So by the end of July of 1968, there was a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Joanne's murder. So let's put that into perspective real quick. In 1968, this is $10,000. Adjusted for inflation today is almost $90,000. Yeah, that's a pretty good reward for um, for an unsolved case uh, these days, for sure. I, I yeah. don't, uh, you don't see that kind of reward money very often. And the Charleston Police Department conducted the investigation initially with the assistance of the New Hampshire State Police and investigators worked diligently on the case, but solid leads did not come in quickly. However, according to an article in the Concord Monitor from February of 1969, police did have three suspects in Joanne's murder, with one of them being called a prime suspect. But the police did not state who these men were. Obviously, they, they're not going to give that up to the public. But they all were identified as New Hampshire men and that police believed they had one good clue that wasn't specifically disclosed. This just feels like they're setting it up so one of these people gives the information that wasn't in the press to right or, or is looking for, you know, it's like a little bit of a bait here, it feels like. Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, yeah, that quote, one good clue. Um, yeah, so that's a holdback that they're kind of referring to there. But apparently they never got it. And however, the article also noted that there had been a man fishing the morning of June 11th near where Joanne's body was found. And that man described a light colored vehicle crossing the bridge near where he was fishing. And he stated that a man was driving and then he saw a girl with her head back against the center post on the passenger's side of the vehicle. And that is the only known possible witness to Joanne's abduction. And also noted in that same article was that police had investigated the maker of the masking tape used to asphyxiate Joanne and that it had been in distribution only within a year of her murder. So that's a really good clue. Or it should be. Definitely should be. So you're looking at like who sold that type of tape in that area, uh, you know, trying to narrow it down that way, I suppose. And... I'm also wondering if they said they identified all of the men as New Hampshire men. Maybe that was a little bit of a bait. Maybe one was like a Vermont man and one was a Massachusetts man. And they said all are New Hampshire men just to see if they could rouse up something where, I don't know, somebody who might have some knowledge come forward and says, no, they, it wasn't a New Hampshire man. Yeah, it's possible. I don't know how often they do that, though, right? Because couldn't that be used against them if they were to find a, a suspect that they're bringing to trial? I don't know. Well, I guess it's all in how they word it, right? They could say, yeah, yeah. we did have those three New Hampshire men who we can't tell you about because it's you know private. It's you know right. We don't want to violate their privacy. And this person just happened to pop on our radar after the fact. And that Concord Monitor article had one last bit of interesting information. Joanne's school attendance record was checked, and it was noted that she had missed 10 days of school, which seems a little excessive. But it doesn't state in what period of time those 10 days were, only that she was a sophomore that year at Fall Mountain. I saw this piece of information, and I was like, wow, missed 10 days of school. And then I took a step back. She was a sophomore. It was June. So I was thinking about myself as a sophomore in June, high school. I probably missed like a dozen days. Yeah, I don't think it's uncommon to, to miss um, a few days here and there. I mean, 10 might be a little bit much. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure exactly when she moved. So maybe maybe missing days had to do with that. But 
The weird part about this is that six of those 10 days that she was absent were on Tuesdays. And that happens to be the same day of the week that she was murdered. So is there a coincidence related to Tuesdays? Or I guess the speculation being, could she have maybe skipped school to meet someone on Tuesdays and then that person ended up killing her? Yeah, I think that's a pretty decent way to think about that if you're trying to make that connection. But given the fact that we don't know if these were consecutive Tuesdays or kind of sporadically, I do believe that it's not outside the realm of possibilities, though, that there could have been something where there were these rendezvous on Tuesdays and it could be connected to her murder. And in a second Concord Monitor article from March of 1971, it stated that Joanne's murder is still unsolved, but it noted that, quote, one of five, end quote, unsolved murders is Joanne's. And that was uh, that happened in within three years in the same area. And at the time that this article came out, Michael Dunn, the New Hampshire assistant attorney general, described Joanne's homicide as a, quote, weird case and that the facts of the case are, quote, baffling. And after this point in time, the news articles about Joanne's murder are scarce. And so I think that that might have been a little bit irresponsible on the part of Michael Dunn to describe it as weird and baffling, because maybe on some, like, subconscious level, people just turned away at that point, that it's weird and baffling, so what are we going to do about this? And then it just sort of fell from the public uh, view. Yeah, on one hand, I am impressed in a way that he's being honest um, about it and calling it a weird case and baffling, but I don't feel like that's something you hear these days. Um, so I don't know whether that's just evolution of media and, and police relations or what. Yeah, I think you probably are right there that there's certain nuances that the spokespersons for these current day investigations will behave according to. There's like guidelines. You know, there's so many things you don't want to say in order to not jeopardize a case. Yeah, or to even just cause fear or something like that. You know, right. someone could read that article and who knows, you know, I don't know. So yeah, I think it was almost like too much information, not like important information about the case, but almost like just too much of his opinion. Yeah, too much personal opinion information. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And by 1986, the Concord Monitor was relating that there were now eight unsolved deaths, and that includes Joanne's. These eight deaths were of concern, so much so that local law enforcement officials were getting together to discuss if there were any connections between these killings. And that brings us back to Unity. Two of the homicide victims were also found in Unity which was not far from where Joanne was located, which is also a town that comes up in different contexts in Dark Valley with the River Valley killings. And if we're talking about the Concord Monitor in 86 saying that there were eight unsolved deaths, including Joanne's, that were concern enough, right? That law enforcement officials were getting together to discuss if there were any connections in the killings. And now we're going to speak with Jennifer Mel, host and producer of Dark Valley, to consider a possible connection between Joanne Dunham's case and the River Valley killer. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I think Joanne's case is really important to talk about in the context of the Connecticut River Valley cases. Okay, can you provide a little context to that, Jen? Because when we had been 
starting our work with the River Valley killings, we had always kind of gone back and forth. Was Joanne one of the earlier victims? Was she not? Is this someone completely different? Was it maybe the killer performing these acts in one way and realizing that the knife was a better way to use it? Uh, Just maybe elaborate a little bit on this for us. Yeah, I don't think we can ever really rule out a serial killer changing up their MO over time. However, there's been no authorities that have linked Joanne Dunham's case to the Connecticut River Valley cases. But I think there's a few points that we should kind of touch on uh, to consider it. As we might know, if you guys are listeners of Dark Valley, Betsy Critchley and even worse were stabbing victims. Joanne wasn't. Her official cause of death was from asphyxiation. We don't really have much more information about if it was a manual strangulation situation or like if she was garroted in some way. But it's interesting to think about in the context of the Valley cases, because with almost every victim, you have a slash or multiple slashes across the neck. That to me, and I'm not an expert, but that to me kind of signifies that the killer has a fascination with the neck area. So, I mean, I think I already raised the question, like, should we be looking at other strangulation cases as connected to the Valley Killer? And also, I, Jen, I think it's interesting that Joanne's murder occurred in 1968 when most of the cases that are considered to be a part of the Connecticut River Valley murders occurred between 1978 and 1988. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to point out. So we have a 10-year difference almost exactly between Dunham's case and Mary Elizabeth Critchley. It could be a significant kind of anniversary if it is the same killer. Uh, We're talking about 10 years here. Uh, But Dunham was found just under two miles from where Betsy Critchley and eventually even worse, his body was were found uh, in the woods of Unity. Given all the work that you've done, Jen, with the uh, River Valley killings and those victims and their locations all within this area uh, between New Hampshire and Vermont, known as the Valley, Joanne does fit that as far as the location. And I'm just wondering if this, in your opinion, if she wasn't connected to those murders that you've been talking about, what does that say to you about the area? So yeah, we have uh, a pretty close geographical distance between Joanne and multiple other murders. Uh, All the murders in New Hampshire occurred around the town of Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh, One of them, Eva Morse, uh, lived in North Charleston, the same small town that Joanne Dunham lived in. But I think it's perhaps spurious thinking to attribute every death, suspicious, homicide, or otherwise, to the same killer. I mean, I myself have fallen into this trap multiple times. I'll find someone who's capable of murder who has been charged with assault in the area and think, well, they they might be a good suspect for the Valley Killer. But it's just not true. There are, there are other bad people in that area capable of murder. Well, we appreciate that insight, Jen. And... It is really fascinating how this world of the Valley, including the River Valley killings and Joanne Dunham, and even prior to that, Gary Schaefer, it's fascinating how this area in New England is becoming more and more connected through these acts of violence. And we'd like to see all of them brought to some form of justice for the families, for the victims, 
And in Joanne's case, unfortunately, that won't happen for her dad. Her dad did not live to see his daughter's killer identified or brought to justice. He died in 2012. And Joanne's murder is a part of the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit's files and is still unsolved today, a full 55 years after her abduction and murder. If you have any information on the murder of Joanne Margaret Dunham, you are instructed to please contact the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663, or you could email coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.